Who was Jesus? I asked Google. Google thinks he's pretty famous. Just to be sure, though, I did 18 other queries. I asked who was Jesus, and then I tried 18 other people just to see if Jesus was really as famous as Google thinks he is. Here are those 18 queries in descending order. Jesus, 820 million hits. Michael Jordan, 693 million. Michael Jackson, 543 million. Abraham, 269 million. Muhammad, 220 million. Krishna, 194 million. Julius Caesar, 193 million. The Buddha, 168 million. Moses, 141 million. Hitler, 139 million. Elvis, 115 million. Joe Montana, 98,800,000. Babe Ruth, 40,900,000. The great one, Wayne Gretzky, 14,400,000. Moroni, patron angel of the Mormon tradition, 3,350,000. Jared Irvin, who you may know as one of the coolest cats who attends this church. He's a first service person, usually sits over there on the back. Jared Irvin has 5,600,000. Dr. Matthew Brace, who often plays bass for us. His sister is playing this morning. It's a very talented family. Dr. Matthew Brace, 38,200. Yours truly, 32,200. So just to make sure, I checked some ladies also. Just to make sure. Taylor Swift, 178 million. Mother Teresa, 154 million. Katy Perry, 110 million. Joan of Arc, 46,200,000. Lindsay Irvin, the wife of said Jared Irvin. We got a great laugh out of this in first service. They were both here. Remember that Jared had 5.6 million hits, but Lindsay has 10,300,000. She was pretty pleased. Letitia Brace, wife of Dr. Matthew Brace, 18,200. And Nikki Candelon, my wife who was... Here in first service, 32,500. So me and my wife are almost equal in our anonymity. Jesus, however, is anything but. Anonymous, that is. Matthew chapter 1 bears this out. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Peretz and Zerah by Tamar. Peretz, the father of Chezron, and Chezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab, the father of Nachshon. Nachshon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz. We know Boaz. By Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Oved by Ruth. We know her too, don't we? Oved was the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. We know that guy. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Aviah, Aviah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Yoram, Yoram the father of Uzziah. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. His train filled the temple. And Uzziah the father of Yotam, Yotam the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hizkiyahu. 
Hezekiah, Chizkiyahu, the father of Menashe, and Menashe, the father of Amos, Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. So that's where we're placed in history at this point. Funny, right? We just finished a whole series talking about the deportation to Babylon. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shaltiel, and Shaltiel, the father of Zerubbabel. And it was during the years of Zerubbabel that the Jews returned from Babylon. And it's no mistake that his name, Zerubbabel, means the one who cast down Babylon. I wonder if his father happened to be listening to a certain prophecy in the years leading up to the birth of his son, who he named the one who cast down Babylon. Zerubbabel, the father of Eud, of Eud, the father of Eliakim, Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Tzadok. You're like, he's really going to read us a genealogy. Tzadok, the father of Akim, and Akim, the father of Eliud, Eliud, the father of Elazar, and Elazar, the father of Matan, Matan, the father of Jacob. We're really getting obscure now. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Matthew likes symmetry. Matthew likes Judaism. He's trying to connect Christianity to Judaism. Jews love symmetry. That's why it's 14, 14, and 14. And in fact, Matthew had to mess with the genealogy a little bit to get it to fit 14, 14, and 14. If you go back, as I did, and actually read the genealogies from the book of Kings and Chronicles, you'll see that Matthew was a little creative to get to the 14, 14, and 14, but that's besides the point. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Yeshua, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, our friend Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Immanuel, which means God with us. Imanu, with us, El, God, with us, God. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Yeshua. He called his name Jesus. Jesus is anything but anonymous. There's a lot of debate surrounding him, but there are some things that virtually all scholars, okay, secular and sacred, ancient and modern, there are some points upon which virtually all scholars agree, and here they are. So these are the points about the historical Jesus that almost all of collected scholarship throughout human history has agreed upon. He was born somewhere between B.C. 4 and died somewhere around A.D. 33. So he wasn't born exactly at zero, right? Four years before zero, approximately. This is when Jesus was born. And he died somewhere around A.D. 33. So we typically say Jesus died at 33. No, he's probably closing in on 40. He was a first century Jewish preacher. He was a religious leader, often called a rabbi. He was from Galilee, which is part of Israel. It's in the northern part of the country. It is considered and was considered even in its day to be where the provincial cousins lived. Okay, the power, the wealth, the authority was centered in the south, in and around Jerusalem, the tribe of Judah and Benjamin. 
The northern tribes were marginalized. That's where he's from, a Galilean Jew. Scholars agree that he was baptized by John the Baptist, and then he began his own ministry. He was a preacher. He was known as a healer. He loved to teach in parables, and he gathered a large following. That large following and the things he was saying about himself got him in trouble with the authorities. Not the Romans, but the Jewish authorities. The high priestly family, the priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the ruling elite of Jerusalem ended up taking umbrage with this Galilean preacher whose gathering, whose following had gotten a little too big for comfort. And so they arrested him and tried him. All scholars agree that, well, almost all scholars agree that Jesus was put to death, crucified on the order of Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate was the Roman prefect in Israel at that time. And I have actually seen myself a stone that comes from Jerusalem at the time of Jesus that bears on it the name Pontius Pilatus, Pontius Pilate. Okay, he is a historical figure, undeniably so. He is referenced in multiple sources that are extra-biblical. So scholarship agrees that Jesus was crucified at Pontius Pilate's order. And they do agree that after the death of Jesus, his followers believed that he had been resurrected from death. Key point. They agree that his followers clearly believed that he'd been resurrected from death. They believed it so much so that the community that they formed around that truth became the early church, an organization that has now spread to encompass the world. Almost nobody debates these things. But whether his claims of equality with God, I and the Father are one, Jesus is famous or infamous for saying, whether his atoning death on the cross as a sacrifice for the sins of the world, whether his resurrection, ascension, and whether or not his ultimate return to judge the living and the dead and to inaugurate his kingdom which will never end, a kingdom in which you have a place, whether these are true is where we find the intersection of fact and faith. I'm talking from a scholarly point of view. If you find yourself at that intersection, and it's possible that you're there, I would hope that every week in church we would have some people coming to experience it for the first time. And if you're here today and you would say that you're kind of at that intersection where faith and facts collide, then welcome to church. I am so happy you're here today. I wrote this sermon for you. Because at that intersection, where fact and faith kiss, we have to ask ourselves a few questions. Here's the first question we need to ask at the intersection of faith and fact. Okay, first question. Is the universe exclusively material, or is there a spiritual component to it? It's an important question. I was wrestling with this when I was a young man. I think around 9 or 10 was how old I was when I was wrestling with whether or not I believed that there was a spiritual component to the universe or whether it was exclusively material. I remember asking my elders about the space-time continuum and how God could be omnipresent and how I could still have free will if God was all-powerful. Is the universe exclusively material or is it spiritual? If you say, no, I don't believe there is a spiritual component to the universe, fair enough, many people feel that way. And for you this year... Christmas is about eggnog, and that's it. You know, enjoy what you can. Merry Christmas, but it really doesn't mean anything if you believe there is no spiritual component to the universe. And if that's you here today, please don't leave now. Please stay and listen to the whole thing, and 
maybe you'll get a little nudge to reconsider your perspective. If you answered, yes, I believe there is a spiritual component to the universe, that leads you to question number two, which is this. Do you think that the spiritual element to the universe can be experienced? Question one, is there a spiritual element? Question two, can it be experienced? If your answer to that is no, then you're an agnostic, which means I'm not sure. It's perfectly okay to be an agnostic. I've gone through agnostic phases in my life. When I was younger and having endured tremendous suffering and periods of darkness where my faith was kind of shaken, I was like, I'm just really not sure anymore. So if you're sitting here this morning and you would put yourself in that category, totally fine and good. I'm just not sure. But if you don't believe that the spiritual component to the universe can be experienced, then really your hope is in material things. Your belief is that basically anything goes. Because if you're not sure about what's what, then it makes sense to allow everything to kind of have its way. If you don't think the spiritual component of the universe can be experienced, you're an agnostic, universalist, pluralist. And so what I suggest for you this Christmas is that you put some rum in your eggnog. Because you want to get as much happiness as you can while you can. So don't just drink eggnog. Drink eggnog with rum. All right? Because you want to be happy. And I get that, and I respect it. I totally, totally get it. If you answer yes, however... Yes, I believe the spiritual component of the universe can be experienced, then that leads to question number three. Okay, if you think the spiritual component of the universe can be experienced, which of the great human spiritual traditions have you explored, and which one makes the most sense to you? If your answer is, well, I haven't really explored any, then you've got some work to do. And you can consider this morning uh, a fact-finding mission. It's just a first step. But maybe, like me, you have spent some time exploring them. Maybe your answer to question three is, I've explored some. Then maybe we should reflect on some of those great human spiritual traditions. I've explored every single one I can find. And here is what I have learned. Michael Jordan is, in fact, the greatest of all time. But he's not a very nice person. I've read three biographies on MJ, and I'm pretty sure he's not my savior. I learned this from Michael Jackson. Um, Billie Jean is not my lover. She's just a girl who thinks that I am the one, but the kid is not my son. I learned this about Abraham. I, I learned he's a great patriarchal nomad. He's the father of Judaism and Islam both. But though he's a great man, and I've studied Abraham a lot, he's clearly just a man. I'm pretty sure he's not going to save me. Muhammad, he was a desert warrior, and he created a very compelling synthesis of Judaism and early Christianity that really appealed to desert nomads like himself. It was a militant picture combining elements of early Christianity and Judaism. But I've read the Quran three times, and not once as I read the Quran did it sing to me. You know how the Bible sings to you? You read it, and it's like the pages jump out at you. It's like God himself is speaking to you. That honestly never happened to me when I read the Quran. I find classical Hinduism to be a control construct meant to protect the social structure of India. I studied it in depth during my first degree. Classical Hinduism is very clearly designed to keep the lowest of the low as low as possible so that they don't bother the highest of the high. As a result, I find classical Hinduism very depressing. 
Devotional Hinduism, though, I like. Because devotional Hinduism, which was, of course, designed for the common person like me, says, you don't got to worry about classical Hinduism. You just need to devote yourself to one god. So depending on your interpretation of classical Hinduism, three deities, 33 deities, or 33 million deities, all you got to do to be a good devotional Hindu is focus on one of them. So devotional Hindus would consider me a very faithful devotional Hindu because I have spent my whole life focused on Jesus. I like devotional Hinduism quite a lot. But it's not enough. Rome has fallen, of course. Caesar was a failure. I think Buddha would have been my friend. I like his philosophy very much. But Buddhism is just that. It's a philosophy. It's not a faith. Therefore, it is not able to save me. Moses, same as Abraham. He was an epic person, but he's buried on a hill outside the promised land somewhere. I'm not going to worship him as my only hope. Hitler, of course, was evil, and Germany is still paying the price. Rock and roll is not the answer, but it's fun. We're at Elvis now, right? You're seeing what we're doing here? Rock and roll is not the answer, but it's fun. Joe Montana, Babe Ruth, and Wayne Gretzky were specialists at doing something really well that doesn't really matter. Moroni is a bad name. Enough said. And Jared Irvin's meals, he's a wonderful cook, might be a taste of heaven, but I'm pretty sure they're not going to save me. Matt Brace will one day fix my crow's feet, or if my chin gets really ridiculous, I'll get him fixed that too. He's a facial plastic surgeon. The last thing you need to be looking at is like a very large chin from Todd Canelon. So he'll fix that, and me, I'm going to do my best to preach good so God gets his glory and you get your joy, but I'm pretty sure neither Jared nor Matt nor me are going to save you. But um, Jesus? You might be on to something with Jesus. You might be on to something. Let me introduce you to him a little bit. Look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew here is trying to establish Jesus' link to God's covenantal promise and his rights to the Davidic throne. That's why he says, because you're like, which one is he? He can't be the son of both. See, the son of Abraham or of David. So clearly here, Matthew's saying, this is a different kind of man we're talking about. Okay, and clearly here he's saying, he is the embodiment of God's covenantal promise to Abraham. If you know the story of Abraham, you know that God picked him, made a promise to him, said, I will be your God, you will be my person, and not only that, but all of your descendants will be my people too. That's the covenant, the promise that God struck with Abraham. Matthew's saying that Jesus is the son of that covenant. He is the embodiment of that covenant promise. And in linking him to King David, the greatest king of Jewish history, he's saying Jesus is the rightful king. To Matthew, Jesus is the embodiment of I will be your God and you will be my person, and he is the heir to David's throne. To Matthew, Jesus is the last and great symbol of the righteous king and the righteous kingdom. Matthew is here saying, in effect, right off the top in verse 1, Jesus is the descendant of giants. Okay, he's more than just the son of a marginalized house builder from a town of 200 people who could preach good, you know, gathered to himself a following that got so big it got him killed. Okay, Matthew here is saying that Jesus is worthy of being your Messiah. Why? Because he's the descendant of giants and 
Fortunately for us, he is also the descendant of some morons and misfits. You'll, you'll see them outlined as we go through verses 2 through 11. Lukey will flip through it as I refer to them. Meet some of the morons and misfits in Jesus' genealogy. Isaac, son of Abraham. Major domestic issues. Okay, we're going to explore the lives of Isaac, Jacob, and Esau in our New Year's series called Patriarch, A Love Story. And you will see what I mean by domestic issues. Okay, this guy's life was messed up. Jacob, his son, a cheat and a liar. The sons of Israel, the sons of Jacob, they're basically the housewives of the land of Canaan meets the bachelor meets clash of clans with a little family feud mixed in. Boaz, now there's a faithful guy, but uh, I don't know how I would have felt about his choice of wife because he married a Moabitess, and the Moabites were the historical enemies of God's people. God, however, showed himself faithful through that union to bring forth Oved, the father of Jesse, who was the father of King David. Now we get to someone great, King David. But the thing about King David was, yes, he was iconic and great, the greatest Jewish king of all time, but he was also bloodthirsty, a poet, a musician, a warlord, adulterer, murderer, and a man after God's own heart. He's known to have worn the foreskins of his vanquished enemies around his neck on a necklace. You're like, really? Yeah. You're like, whoo. And that guy is a man after God's own heart. Teachable point for you from David. If God can love David, I'm pretty sure he can love you. Right? That's why David is encouraging. A man after God's own heart. Oh, there's room for me. His son Solomon, also a great king. Built the great temple of God in Jerusalem. But he married too many wives who led him astray in his old age. Teachable point from Solomon's life. Finish well. There's nothing more depressing than a 78-year-old man who screws it all up at the end of his life. Or an 80-year-old Christian woman who gives it all up at the end of her life. Let's finish well. Okay, let's finish well. What's your grandkids to say? My grandpa, my grandma, they loved Jesus until they went to see Jesus. And hey, a little word to you. If you've had some hiccups in your life, doesn't mean you can't finish well. Right? Redemption means you can start fresh today and finish well tomorrow. Another point from Solomon, too many wives. Maybe one wife is enough wife for one life. Just saying. (laughs) Just saying. Rehoboam, son of Solomon, he's a fool. The kingdom is divided in his day into Israel in the north and Judah in the south. The son of Rehoboam, well, he was faithful to the Lord all his days. Note to self, that's what I'd like people to say of me, and I hope that's what you'd like people to say of you. That man, that woman was faithful to God all their days. Jehoshaphat, son of Asaph, funny. Godliness runs in families. He was good like his dad. He made peace with Israel to the north. Yoram, however, his son was a fool. Why? He married the daughter of Ahab. If you know the story of Judah and Israel, Ahab was the worst king of the kingdom of Israel ever. Okay? And Yoram married his daughter, and she led him astray. He ended up killing all his brothers. Teachable point. Be careful who you marry. Right? You know this, right? Other than following Jesus, who you marry is the most important decision you'll ever make. Be careful. Uzziah, he was powerful, but... Power corrupted him. In fact, he presumed to enter the Lord's temple and burn incense before the Lord as if he was a priest. And the priest is saying, don't do it. It's a bad idea. But he does it anyway. And leprosy breaks out on his forehead because the Lord struck him. And he was a leper the rest of his days. So he had to step down from the kingdom and his son ruled in his place. Power corrupts. Dante said it, but absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. Let's not be that guy. Let's not be that 
Gal. But his son, Yotam, he was a godly warrior. He ordered his days before the Lord, okay? Note to self, you could do that this week, right? You could order your days before the Lord. You could make him king of your schedule. Ahaz, the next king, he's a bad dude. He was an idolater. But his son, Hizkiyahu, King Hezekiah, he trusted the Lord. And Hizkiyahu is the greatest king post-David. And the Bible says that no king arose after him that could even touch him. Hizkiyahu was great because he trusted the Lord. Ask yourself this this week. How can I trust the Lord this week? Okay, your life may be difficult, complex, but surely there will be one moment this week where you can actively trust the Lord and do so and remember that that's what made King Hezekiah great. His son, Menashe, the worst king of all time. He's the worst of the worst, guilty of witchcraft and sorcery, guilty of child sacrifice. In fact, God was so upset about the sins of Menashe that he organizes and orchestrates the Babylonian conquest of Jerusalem and the deportation of God's people to Babylon in response to Menashe's wickedness. Ammon abandoned the Lord. But Josiah, the next generation down, began to seek the Lord at eight years of age. It is never too soon for your kids to begin seeking the Lord. That's why we prioritize kids here at Grace. He's eight years old and began to seek the Lord. And Josiah is known to this day as the great reformer who restored the worship of Yahweh in Jerusalem. Jeconia and his brothers, they're fools. They're led into captivity in Babylon during their days. The point here is this. Even Jesus' lineage is full of ups and downs. So don't let your checkered past keep you from coming to Jesus. Okay? Hopefully this lineage, you've seen, it's full of leaders and losers. So don't let your checkered past keep you from coming to Jesus. Also, as history has clearly shown us here, keep in mind that we ought to have no other king but Jesus. Clearly, he's the only king that will do. I still follow Jesus 33 years after giving my heart to him because I have seen no other way that makes more sense or works better. I'm just being honest. There is, at the heart of my faith, a complex utility. Okay? There is, of course, the ongoing experience of God's supernatural presence, which happens to me as I touch heaven every week with you in this context, as I experience him out in the wider world. So yes, I experience his presence on an ongoing basis, but I am rooted in a strong utility where I can see that my faith in Christ has turned my life into something that makes sense and something beautiful, dare I say. And I saw this in my parents, and I saw this in my grandparents. And I don't say this with pride. I say this to illustrate a point. I don't know anyone happier or more at peace than me, my wife, or our cohort of Jesus-loving friends that we have done life with for the last 20 years. I've never seen a happier marriage than my parents. I've never seen happier, more content old people than my grandparents. I just have never seen it. So this Christmas, in introducing Jesus to you, I hope that you might ask of your system of belief if it is really helping you or not. Because ultimately, we're all just normal people in need of some help, right? Isn't that who we are? All of us. Everybody you know is just a normal person, including us. We're just normal people who need some help. And that's who God's people were. After they returned from Babylon, they were just normal people trying to rebuild their lives. You see their names recorded in verses 12 through 17. I won't read them here for the sake of time, but I want you to notice one thing. That as we move from Abraham 
down through the generations, eventually to Joseph, surrogate father of Jesus, that we see 42 generations of diminishing returns. You see that? 42 generations of diminishing returns. When Zerubbabel and his peers returned to Judah, there was no longer a king in Israel. And imagine if you were from that kingly line, meant to rule and reign in Jerusalem, but instead you end up a landless carpenter building houses in a town of 200 where the houses are built of stone, which means you don't have too many repeat customers. And that's Joseph. Did you know that? To be a builder meant they would have lost their land at some point. They used to own all the land in all the country as kings in Jerusalem. And now he's working for a living in Nazareth, the middle of nowhere town in the northern hills of Israel. And he's dealing with what he thinks is an unfaithful wife. Look here quickly at verses 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus took place this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means with us God. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. Then he called his name Yeshua. Let me tell you about these people. This last part here as we close is not about Jesus. It's about his parents. But it's important for you to remember that his parents were normal people, just like us, normal people with problems. See if you can get any comfort here from their story. Verse 18, Mary was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. We know from other accounts that she had just spent three months with her cousin Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist. She's now come back to Nazareth. It's probably four months into her pregnancy. And guess what? She's showing. Like my belly? I have to push it out, thank God. And Joseph says to her one day, Ah, oh, Mary, what's with that belly? And Mary says, Joe, it was the Holy Spirit. And Joseph says, sure it was. Now the account doesn't say that he said sure it was. But we know that he would have at least thought it because of how he acted. In the verses following, we see that he was minded to put her away. He was a just man, so he didn't want to divorce her publicly because the Jewish law at the time was such that she would have been stoned to death outside the town of Nazareth as a result of being declared an adulteress. So being a just man, a man who wanted to do the right thing in any given situation, he was minded to put her away quietly. But the point is, he was minded to put her away after he found out that she was pregnant, even though she told him that it was by the Holy Spirit. He doesn't believe her. That's the point. Don't miss it. He doesn't believe her. He's getting ready to divorce her. He's living in a disaster and he doesn't know what to do. His not-so-awesome life has taken a turn for the worse. Next time your not-so-awesome life takes a turn for the worse, take great comfort in knowing that you're not the first person or the last person to whom this has happened. Joseph, supposed to be king of Israel, working as a landless carpenter in Nazareth, betrothed to a young girl, 
And then he finds out she's pregnant and he knows he didn't do it. He's living in a disaster. He knows he has to divorce her. He doesn't know what to do. If that's your life, or the next time you find yourself living in a disaster and you don't know what to do, remember Christmas. Because it is at this point in Joseph's story that heaven steps in. It's at this point in Joseph's story that Christmas shows up. He goes to sleep, and an angel appears to him in a dream. And the angel says what angels always say when they show up, don't be afraid. I love that. Every time you see an, almost every time you see an angel show up in Scripture, he's like, chill! It's, it's, chill! I'm not going to hurt you. Don't be afraid. That's what heaven says. Don't be afraid. If that's you, friend, living in the midst of a disaster, don't be afraid because God is involved. Heaven is stepping in, friend. That's the point of Christmas. So don't be afraid because God is involved. And not only is He involved, but He's doing something amazing. And worship team, you can join me because I'm done. He's doing something amazing. What's He doing? He's giving us a son whose name is with us God. Imanu, with us, El, God. And this Emmanuel, this son named with us God, will save his people from their sins because when he grows up, he's going to go to a cross. And as he hangs on that cross, because he's not just a man, but because he is the God-man, the son of God, God the son made flesh, his father will lay upon him, in the words of Isaiah the prophet, the iniquities of us all and the chastisement for our peace will be upon him. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. And so we all deserve to die because of our ongoing and unrelenting sinfulness. And that'd be a huge tragedy because we were made to live forever as God's friends. And so because we could not save ourselves, God himself stepped in to save his people from their sins. And as God the Son hung on that cross, your sins were paid for and so were mine. And God the Son died, but He didn't stay dead. He rose again the third day in victory, triumphing over the power of Satan, sin, death, and hell in His body once and for all. Then He hung out with His friends for a bit, then ascended to His Father's right hand, sat down in victory, or even now He's interceding for you. He'll get up again from that throne to come again in glory to judge the living and the dead and to inaugurate His kingdom which will have no end, a kingdom in which you, my friend, have a place. He will make all things right. For he, verse 21b, will save his people from their sins. So what does Joseph do? He wakes up from his dream. And I wanted to emphasize here that sometimes you should take your dreams seriously. He wakes up from his dream, and what does he do? He takes his wife, and when she had given birth, and I'm going to preach about that on December 23rd at Royal City, Y'all come and bring your friends and family. We're going to fill that cathedral to the rafters. And I get to preach Luke chapter 2. Woo! And it's going to be crazy. So we account the birth of Christ. Woo! Woo! When she had given birth, what does Joseph do? He called his name Yeshua. He called his name Savior. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the descendant of giants and misfits. Normal people like you and me with a very checkered past. But despite his lineage of leaders and losers, because of who he was and what he grew up to do, they still called him Savior. And my deepest hope is that this Christmas, you will too.